Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for um, this day you've given us. Thank you for the rain that you've sent. And thank you for keeping us. And uh, throughout this, this, this whole journey, as we've been meeting online, uh, we thank you for your faithfulness and your providence for us to gather around your word, even if we're in different locations. And we ask that uh, as we do go through the scriptures, please be with us in truth and in spirit. Please bless us. Um, Please uh, give us understanding, please give us wisdom that leads to a changed life, that leads to a life um, that is lived out for the glory of Christ. I ask that you uh, please, ble please bless us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Welcome, guys. Welcome. So, it's our final online session, and we're going to be doing four books. Right? We're going to be doing four books. So if you have your Bible, just turn towards the end, turn towards the end. Like this is, I don't like this part of scripture in, in a physical Bible because you try to turn from chapter one of first John and you end up in Revelation because the pages are like this thin. But guys are going to have to keep your fingers in there because we're going to do a lot of flipping anyways. So we have four books to get through. Uh, we're going to start with Jude and then we'll do first, second and third John, right? If you have your Bibles, turn to Jude. This is the book right before Revelation. And Jude is uh, Jude. Jude and its contents are very similar to Peter's letters, right? So First and Second Peter. Jude is just one chapter. So chapter one, or the only chapter, verse one says, "Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James." So we think this is the James who wrote the book of James, right? The James who was the half brother of Jesus. That would make Jude also the half-brother of Jesus. In the Gospels, this guy, Jude, is referred to as Judas. So Judas was quite a common name back then. And it's not Judas Iscariot, obviously, but his name is also Judas. His full name is Judas, but they called him Jude for short. Kind of like if you call uh, a David, Dave for short. So he says, verse 1, a servant, and brother, uh, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called beloved, Sorry, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So, let's get through it. Verse 3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. So, Jude says, I actually wanted to write to you about our common salvation. But because of the false teachers and dangers they bring, I had to write to contend for the faith, which was once delivered to the saints. And this is a helpful attitude for us to have. There are some Christians who confuse being contentious with contending. It is one thing to contend for the faith. It is another to be contentious for the faith. And contentious Christians they love to be on heresy watch, right? And they've been, uh, I'm sure you've seen those websites where they tell you who is in hell right now. They say Charles Spurgeon is in hell because he believes in election. This guy is in hell because he believes in pedo-baptism. Uh, whoever may be there. And you get these discernment ministries and that is all they do. They just want to expose. They love it. They love to fight. They love to criticize people and what they say and they criticize their every action. They, those Christians are being contentious for the faith, whereas they should be contending for it. And that is what's different about Jude. 
you see the heart of Jude in this letter. And the heart of Jude is one that should characterize us as Christians. We would, we would much rather talk about salvation and God's forgiveness and mercy and love and the new heavens and the new earth. But it is necessary to talk about false teachers and false teaching. And even to name them, because that is the example that we're given in Scripture, in the New Testament. We see false teachers being named, but we don't do it with glee and enjoyment and fun. It's an important duty, right? We do it to protect God's people. And that is important. It, 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 that's contending for the faith. It's not just fighting people. It's not just trying to be controversial for the sake of it. At the same time, we mustn't be those who just say, oh, all we want to do is talk about salvation, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Right? We don't talk about those other things. As believers, we have to be known for what we are for and what we are against. The church and the watching world must know what we are for and what we are against. We see it in scripture. And it is important that we do speak out against false teaching when it's necessary. If you see that the congregation is being affected by a particular false teacher, then we should address it, right? Definitely. But it's not that every Sunday you go to church, it's a sermon being preached about the false teachers. Even in the New Testament, you don't see that. But when there is a real danger, then it must be called out. Also important is that in this instance, in this case, we are not talking about differences in theology. Right? We're not talking about differences in theology that are within orthodoxy. Okay, So R.C. Sproul is a pedo-baptist, but that is not our position as a church at Heritage. doesn't mean that we condemn him and now we talk down on him in the church and we go around saying, how dare you listen to R.C. Sproul? I thought you were a Christian. Right? That is not heresy. Heresy is a teaching that will condemn you. It's a teaching that will damn you to hell, to eternal death. If someone says Jesus is not God and that he's just a prophet, that will damn you to eternal death. And so that is a heresy because you are denying the deity of Christ and you can't be saved. So what should we do? Well, Jude says we should be contending for the faith. And that is an interesting phrase, right? He says, contend for the faith. If I say faith, what comes to mind? It's normally believing, right? Uh, you think of believing. In order to be saved, you must believe. You must have faith in Christ. But that is what, but is that, is that what Jude is talking about here? Note, notice for one that he refers to it as the faith, right? It's not contending for faith. It's contending for the faith. And what is he referring to? If we were to put a definition on it, we would say he is referring to the body of truth, the content of what we believe. He's not talking about believing itself. He's talking about what we believe. So content for the beliefs, right? Content for the faith that was, look at verse 3 again, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So once for all. You know how we say that scripture is complete? It is sufficient. There is no more new revelation. Can you see that in the text? This set of beliefs, this set of truths, this body of God's word has been delivered once for all to the saints. The canon of scripture is closed. Jude then gives us some accounts from the Old Testament uh, about Jesus judging. And here is the warning about apostasy and false teaching. So look at verse 5. It says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. 
So those who rejected God's word, who rejected God's truth as it was revealed to them up to that time, the Lord destroyed them. And verse 6, he continues and he says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in, a, in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So, you know what? This is, this is a very important, uh, very important verse, right? It's very important. It's very fascinating and a very important verse. It's so important that I won't explain it to you not, not right now, right? We'll do so when we see you on Saturday at our, at our year-end function when we look at Revelation. If you are not planning to come, well, now you have to. Otherwise, you might never know. So keep this verse in mind, right? Keep Jude 6 in mind. Uh, make a note of it for when we look at Revelation. Peter says the same thing, actually, about the angels being locked up. And so we will explore that when we get to Revelation on Saturday. Because in Revelation, you get the full picture of what this means. And um, we'll be able to go into full detail on that. So then he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. And in verse 8, he says, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Isn't that a feature amongst false teachers, relying on dreams? You see it a lot today. Have you ever evangelized someone who thinks they are a Christian? Those who say, I don't need a Bible. Uh, I already know what it says. Right? They, say, they come to you and they say, look, God speaks to me. Uh, he has shown me this truth. He speaks to me directly or some other thing like that. God, God apparently speaks to them directly. And false teachers tend to have that mindset. When people are saying that they have visions and dreams, that becomes their ultimate authority. Isn't that right? They put their experience above God's word. They reject the authority of his word. And remember when we looked at First Peter and how Peter was saying that his own experience uh, his own experience of the transfiguration, seeing Jesus Christ being transformed into glory, that experience is not ultimate, but God's word is. And so that must be the case for all believers as well, for me and you, right? God's word is above any and everything that we may experience. And so the rest of verse 8 says, false teachers not only go on to rely on their dreams, it says they defile the flesh, uh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. And then verse 9, he says, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. It's interesting, right? This passage teaches us that you and I can blaspheme the devil. You would think that if there was one person in the whole world that it is good and right to blaspheme, it would be the devil, right? But Jude says no. He calls the devil the glorious one. Right? So the glorious ones here refers to the fallen angels. It refers to demons. He says that even the archangel Michael, when he came to the devil, to Lucifer, when he came to Satan, he did not hurl insults at him. He didn't call him names. He didn't belittle him. Michael did not speak to the devil flippantly. Right? He didn't rebuke Satan. He said, the Lord rebuke you. And Jude says that these false teachers, that is how they talk about the devil. Uh, they blaspheme him, they hurl insults at him, they call him names, they belittle him, they rebuke Satan. And you've seen it, right? You see it on TV, you see it in churches, you see clips on YouTube, and that is exactly how they talk about the devil. Uh, they think they are being amazing and holy and godly, 
um, that they're going that they're going to bind up the devil, or they walk into our house, or they go someplace and they deal with the demons by demanding that they they be cast out and Satan go out of a certain place. That's not biblical, and the devil loves it because he's getting more airtime than he deserves. And it shows how foolish and stupid they are. Because if you think that the devil is pathetic and useless, then he has got you, right? Satan is way more superior to any one of us. He is a formidable being. He's much smarter than us. Satan has had thousands of years to study human nature. So he understands us better than we understand ourselves, right? That's why temptation is so potent. So as Christians, what should we say? We should say the Lord rebuke you. That's what Jesus said. Right? That is what the Archangel Michael said, which is the Lord rebuke you. We don't have the, the we don't have authority over the angels and the demons. Satan is the God of this world, that's what scripture tells us. But God is sovereign even over Satan. Jesus used scripture to rebuke the devil, didn't he? So where do we get the power and the authority to go around rebuking uh, the devil and and casting out demons? the way that we see it being done today. Are we greater than Christ to rebuke the devil ourselves? Let's not fall into that way of thinking. So verse 10, he says, But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So the ESV study Bible comments on this passage, and he says, What they understand instinctively, like animals, is how to follow their bodily instincts and their feelings, and they flout God's moral standards. Following subjective feelings and desires for someone whose conscience is not trained and governed by God's word will lead to that person ultimately being destroyed by his own sinful compulsions. Right. So it's a, it's a it's a warning that we should take seriously from uh, from Jude. Then he talks about greed. So look at verse eleven. He says, "Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain." And abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to, to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So a lot of Old Testament references basically um, um, criticizing their love for money, their love for greed. Verse 18, if you go to verse 18, he says, They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. So again, can you see the similarities between Peter and Jude? There are similarities in what they are addressing. Right? They're dealing with false teachers. They're dealing with um, how to deal with uh, like angels and the spirits. And then verse 20 says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. So there's a difference between false teachers and people who are listening to false teachers, who are being deceived and seduced. When, when dealing with people like that, who are under the sway of false teachers, we are to have mercy on them. Right? So that is very important for us to remember, is to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, we should condemn false teachers, but we should seek to save those who are under their, under their persuasion, under their lies, and should seek to bring them to the Lord. Verse 23 says, Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And then he ends with uh, a great doxology. 
even in the midst of false teachers and false teachings and a lot of chaos and uncertainty and doubt that, uh, that can arise because of that, we can still be encouraged. And this doxology tells us why. It is because the Lord will keep us. So look at verse 24. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So he's, he is able to keep us. God keeps us through our obedience, right? Through our obeying. And when it comes to Jude, what does that obedience look like? It looks like dealing with false teachers and exposing them and warning about them and their teachings. It looks like contending for the faith, for the truth of scripture. So be on the lookout still for false teachers and any ungodly, unbiblical doc doctrines, right? So that's, that's Jude. Are there any questions so far? Then let's move on to John. Uh, you can always keep your questions for the end of the session and then we'll come back to it. So if you turn back now to your Bibles to First uh, John. So if you read First John, um, you will notice that this is the same kind of language as used in John's Gospel. So the, uh, the Gospel of John. It is written by the same John after all. It's the Apostle. It's John the Apostle. And you can see that in verse 1. So look at verse 1. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. So it sounds very similar to how John's gospel starts, right? That which was from the beginning. And even verse 2 says, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaim it to you, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So you can see stylistically, it is John's writing. Just think of John 1, verse 1. Uh, verse one. You know, in the beginning was God and the Word became flesh. You see a lot of the same similarities. And what you will find that uh, uh, in, in the epistles that John writes in, in 1st, 2nd and 3rd John is that he will use contrast a lot. Just like in the Gospel, actually, he will contrast light and dark uh, life and death, sin and salvation. He's very clear on those issues. Um, sorry, oh, there's a question. I only see that now. Speaking of these yeah, epistles, like we're in John's three epistles. And when you, when, sorry, oh yes, that's where I was. I wanted to talk about when these were written, right? So these three epistles, they were written quite late, right? They were written in the 90s. Uh, not, not these 90s, but 90 AD. Uh, whereas most of the epistles are written like 30 years before that. So John's gospel was written, uh, the gospel was written 80, 85 AD. And then these epistles here, they came uh, around 95 AD. Right? This is after the Jewish temple is destroyed in 70 AD. And this is how, this is now the church, right? The early church starting to really grow into its own. And so these letters give us an idea of what was happening during that time. We see what is happening in the church 60 years after Christ. So 1 John is not really a letter. Technically, it's not a letter in the same way that Paul's letters are, right? It's what's called a symphonic or a, it is circular in nature. So it's a symphonic letter. And the word symphonic simply means that 
there are themes that are recurring over and over again. Obviously, it's different things that he says, but I remember Pastor Mike saying that it would be difficult to preach through the whole book of First John because if you go through it expositionally, you will end up repeating yourself because John comes back to the same issue from a slightly different angle. Right? He will make the same point in a different manner. He always circles back. So the key verse in First John is chapter 5, verse 13. I'll read it for you. He says, I write these things to you, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Right? So that is the purpose of this epistle. John is telling us. It is to encourage the believers to know that they may have eternal life. It seems that false teachers have come in and with their false teachings have discouraged the church so that people are starting to question if they are truly saved. People are starting to doubt. They're struggling with, um, they're struggling with uh, salvation, assurance of salvation. These, these false teachers are saying certain things about Jesus. They are saying certain things about themselves and the others. They're saying that the church here doesn't have some secret knowledge, some hidden knowledge. And so the church is shaken and they're wondering if they are truly saved. Right. So you can imagine they're like, we don't have these experiences. We don't see things this way. Are we really saved? And so John has written to comfort them. He says, I'm writing this for you to know that you are truly saved, that you may know that you have eternal life. So first John is a helpful book for people who are wrestling with whether they are saved or not. Because he gives us three tests for our salvation, right? Three tests to know if you are truly saved. The first one is a doctrinal test, right? The second one is a social test. The third is a moral test. So in most commentaries, they'll say the doctrinal test is light. The social test has to do with love. And the moral test is life, right? So light, love, and life. Light, love, and life. And those are the themes of John. It's light, love, and life, and love. Sounds like the title of a movie about self-discovery. You know, it's, it's light, and it's life, and it's love. Uh, and these are also the themes in John's gospel, by the way. And so we have these tests. How do you know you are saved? There's a, there's a doctrinal test, right? Do you have the right doctrine? Do you believe the right things? Do you have the light? And from that, you have an outworking in love. That is a social test. But don't think the whole world, this is love for your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And then lastly, there's the moral component. This is life, which has to do with not continuing in sin. And we will unpack this because it will seem that John is saying contradictory things when that is not really the case. Okay, so let's begin with the doctrinal test. So starting in chapter one. Chapter 1 begins by saying that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim it to you. The, and we, sorry, and testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So, um, who is he talking about here? He's talking about Christ. The word of life which you have seen. Right? We have, he says we have seen him. John is an apostle. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ and he touched him. Now, this is probably what the false teachers were coming in with. They were probably saying that Jesus is not fully human. He just appeared to be human, as in he appeared to be a human being. He looked like one, but he wasn't really. 
you wouldn't be able to touch him. Your arm would go through him like he's a ghost or he's a projection. Why would false teachers say that? So think back to when we did, when we did the intertestamental period. We looked at Greek philosophies. The Greeks were saying that matter is bad. Matter is evil, right? Any physical uh, matter is evil. And so what we should do is we should escape it, right? We should flee from evil by escaping the physical. So salvation to them was escaping matter, escaping the physical. This movement is known as Gnosticism. And if you've heard of that word, uh, you might have heard of the Gnostic Gospels or you've heard of the Da Vinci Code and stuff. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, knowledge of mysteries. So it was said, you must seek this hidden, this esoteric knowledge that is reserved for the few who are truly enlightened, right? Gnosticism itself was not fully blown at this point. It was still growing as a belief, as, a, as, a, as a, uh, an ide ideology, but it eventually grew more and more influential. And of course, when something is big in the culture, it starts to seep into the church and it can cause a lot of damage. But you can see already that it seems to be what John is dealing with because you see how he has to keep on arguing that we saw him, you know, we saw him physically. Not only did we see him, we touched him. So remember, John, John even laid his head on Jesus' chest. He's a disciple whom Jesus loved. You wouldn't be able to do that to a ghost or projection, right? After the resurrection, Jesus goes around and he says, touch me. So why, why is all of this important to us? Why is it that uh, we don't just dismiss this as not much of a big deal? Because we can easily say, so what? They still believe in Jesus, right? They just don't believe in a physical body. Their, their doctrine is mostly correct. Why is that important? Well, this is important because if Jesus doesn't suffer and die a physical death, there's no salvation for us, right? If Jesus doesn't suffer and die a physical death, there is no salvation for us. We saw this when we went through the book of Hebrews. Jesus, in every shape and form, had to be made like us. He had to represent us. If Jesus does not represent us in his humanity, he cannot atone for our sin. Right? It's why he became a man and not an angel. Why did Jesus Christ come? Why did God come incarnate as a man and not an angel? Right? It's because he had to be like us. He, be, he had to be, Hebrews says he was made like us in every, uh, in every way. So Gnosticism is, is very, it's very significant. It's a significant attack on the very core nature of the gospel. John is saying this is a doctrinal test. If you deny that, then you are not saved. True believers believe in the humanity of Jesus Christ. They have the correct Christology. That's what the word is. Christology is the study of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5 says, this is the message we have heard from him. And proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, un from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And then he goes on to say in chapter 2, so if you turn to chapter 2 of 1 John verse 4, he says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever abides in him 
ought to walk in the same way in which you walked. And then if you go to chapter 3, chapter 3, and in verse 4, he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of, of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Right? And then he talks about uh, love for your brother. Verse 16, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So what is he saying here? What does love look like? Jesus laid, laid down his life for us. That is the greatest display of love. And so what does love look like for us? We need to lay down our lives for our brothers, right? For our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We should lay down our lives for one another, right? That is what love looks like. What does this look like? Practically, it's not me going up on a cross for you. Obviously not. But verse 17, he says that, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, it closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Now turn to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Beloved, whoever, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then if you go down all the way to verse 20, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hate his brother. He is a liar. So that is a very hectic statement. And I always pause and reflect on it. If you hate your brother, you do not love God. Okay. doesn't matter what you believe or how on point your doctrine is. It should really cause us to stop and think what is our relationship with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. All right. So verse 20 is like, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God also must also love his brother. So all these verses across all these chapters that I just read, what do we see coming up consistently as marks of you being of God, as marks of you knowing God? Well, if you say you have no sin, you are a liar, right? And yet, if you do sin, you are not saved. Right, So you come along and you say, I am saved because I do not sin. Well, you're a liar because you do sin. But if you come and you say, I do sin, then, oh no, John tells us that those who are born of God do not sin. So you cannot be saved. Well, what do we do? It seems to be an apparent contradiction, right? That's the first thing we notice. But I think what John is saying is, in the context of this whole book, what are the sins that show that you are not born of God? So now look at the specific sins he's referring to. Did you pick it up when we were reading those passages? It is the sin of not loving the brothers, right? You see that? It would make sense because if we have the sin of not believing that Jesus came as God and that he came in the flesh, you are not saved, obviously, 
right? You cannot be Christian because you're denying something that is core and central to the gospel. Also, if you do not love the brothers, you are not a Christian. You cannot say you love God and you don't love people and you don't especially love God's people. Clearly, it is a sin that a Christian cannot commit, right? Now, don't think I am not a Christian because at church I got angry with a fellow believer and I said some things. This is, this is not the love... Uh, that is not the kind of love we are talking about. This is not a sentimental feelings and vibes and emotions kind of love, right? This is actual love that serves and sacrifices. But if you, because if you see a brother or a sister in need and you don't care, then you are not saved, right? You, can, if you can be in that place in your heart where you see your brothers and sisters in in need, but you just ignore them and you do not care, then you are not born of God, right? That is what he's saying over there. So, there is the doctrinal test, right? Secondly, there is the love test. Do you love your brothers? And then third is continuing in unrepentant sin, right? This is lifestyle. We all know that if you live a lifestyle over a, 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 a long period where we see no fruit, there's no bearing of fruit, if you continue with certain sins and you can live that way with a clear and free conscience, then you're probably not a believer. And interesting i think it was pastor mike who once observed that a lot of believers actually tend to to they do live in unrepentant sin but whenever they do that the lord will step in and the lord will either call them home early right or he will give them a hiding he'll discipline them right he'll uh, what's the word that scripture uses i think it's chastise right not that they are not that they are not saved because think of david david continued in unrepentant sin for almost a year before Nathan, the prophet Nathan, came and dealt with him. And David lost a child in the process. It was the consequences of his sin. So, of course, it is not a license to continue in unrepentant sin. We don't abuse the grace of God or make a mockery of it. We should live repentant lifestyles, right? And so, uh, those are the tests. Those are the three tests. And they are very important. I don't know if you know of the... There's this hypothetical question, you know, that's been asked of many Christians. Uh, where they're like, where, where, where they ask you, if you get to heaven and, and you stand before the Lord and he asks you, why should I let you in? What are you going to say? Right. Um, you're not going to stand there and, and um, um, just, you know, recite like, oh, I love the brothers. Oh, I did this thing. or oh, I did that thing. No, you are going to have to say it's Christ. You stand there on the merits of Christ. Right. These tests are merely a way for us, uh, a means of assurance, a means of seeing or testing and evaluating for yourself, am I a believer, right? Does my doctrine say that I'm a believer? Does my relationship with God's people say that I'm a believer? Does my lifestyle say that I'm a believer? It's really those three things. It's simple. There's this story of a Dutch Reformed pastor in, in Holland, in the Netherlands, and often when Christians... When Christians are on their deathbeds, they are hit with doubts and fears and all kinds of things, right? They start to wonder if they've been truly saved. And one of the elders came to see him and asked him, do you love the brothers? And that really helped the guy because he realized, yes, yes, I do love the brothers. I do love my Christian brothers and sisters. And so that became an encouragement to him. It is bearing fruit, showing that you do love the people of God. It is a sign of salvation, right? And that is amazing because the church in its greatest form, you could argue, would be filled with people that are different from you, right? 
people from i mean when you read revelation it's people from every tribe nation uh every language every tongue um so it's uh, the church is filled with people from different cultures different ethnicities things like that it's like your physical family you don't pick your physical family right it's the same thing with the church you don't get to pick who is in god's family if it was up to you the church would probably be filled with people who look like you who dress like you who, who like the things that you do so the fact that you love those people who are so different from you it's a supernatural act it is god's grace right but these things they are they cannot be foundational what is foundational is who christ is and what he has done so look at chapter 5 chapter 5 verse 1 he says everyone who believes that jesus is the christ has been born of god verse 6 he says this is what this is he who came by water and blood jesus christ and by water and blood I think the water refers to his physical birth and the blood uh, is uh, the blood, like his physical body. And some say that the water refers to baptism and makes sense. But I think if you take the uh, context of, of 1 John, um, by water, I think st more strongly refers to his physical birth. So verse 6, he says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And this is a testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son, uh, the son of God does not have life. So again, that is ultimate. That is the ultimate test. The ultimate foundation. The ultimate foundation is not, I have good theology and I'm a good person who loves people. The ultimate assurance of our salvation is what Christ has done. And the testimony that God gave us in, is, is that of eternal life in his son right that is our ultimate foundation so if we are standing on the on the day of judgment and the lord is asking why should i let you into heaven it is because of christ right that is what it boils down to verse 16 he says uh if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death he shall ask and god will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death there is sin sorry uh, will give life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. So that's a very interesting passage. I think this is very similar to the unpardonable sin. So uh, just ask yourself, if your sin is rejecting who Christ is, if it is rejecting the doctrinal truth of who Christ is, it is a sin that is going to lead to death. Does that make sense? So if you lie, you can lie and you can still go to heaven. But if you deny who Christ is, then it is a sin that leads to death. Okay. So um, are there any questions or comments on 1 John? Let me, let me go to 2nd and 3rd John and then we can come back and maybe just comment and deal with any other uh, thoughts that you guys might have. So 2nd John, we're going to do 2nd and 3rd John. These two letters are more of your traditional letters, right? Uh, letters at least according to how the culture would write them. So when you look at Paul's letters, for example, 
they were not ordinary for those times. I don't think they're ordinary even for these times. You know, that's why we, we mostly refer to, we think of Paul's letters as books because they're so long. Whereas 2nd and 3rd John are more of the norm. Letters normally are this short, right? Even today, our letters would traditionally be this short, right? Now in 2nd John, it says verse 1, uh, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So the elder is John, and it might be referring to him as a church elder, or could be saying, uh, it could be to say that he was old in age, like he's an elder, elderly man. But he can, uh, he can also be referring to himself as the elder because he was an apostle, right? So he's not just a regular, regular elder, he's an apostle. The elect lady and her children... I don't think that's referring to an actual lady, specific lady. I think that is referring to the church. Uh, the late lady is the church and the children are those who belong to that church. Because if you notice in these letters, letters you'll keep saying, little children, do this, do this, don't do this. Right. So what is happening here? Look at verse 7. He says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So this is where we are introduced to an Antichrist. And again, if you want to know more about an Antichrist, come on Saturday. Then you get the full lowdown of what an Antichrist is, right? But I will say this. Um, uh, today, I think when we use the word Antichrist, it's become a common term for an end times figure. Like there's only going to be one final end times figure, right? Uh, but that is not how John uses the term Antichrist. How John uses it, he speaks of many antichrists, right? It's not, it's, I mean, it's not wrong to speak of an end times final, end times antichrist, but strictly speaking, the Bible doesn't speak of that term in that way, right? They, we see that there have been several antichrists throughout history. So he recognizes that Christ came in the flesh, echoing First John. So look at verse 8. He says, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. That's interesting. The idea is, the idea here is people who go above and beyond scripture, right? Who think they are too clever. That is exactly what you find in liberal scholarship and in the academic world, right? Just think of your standard traditional atheist. They, they've become too clever for their own good. They think they're above the wisdom of God in Scripture. And the Scripture calls that wisdom foolishness because that's what it is. So he says, um, verse 9, Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Verse 10, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greeting takes part in his wicked works. So the context here is that there were many itinerant preachers at this time. Right, so an itinerant preacher is a preacher who basically preaches in different places, not based at, a, at one church. So they would go from village to village and preach. And in 3 John, uh, he encourages the church and he, he really he, um, he exhorts them because they welcome these itinerant preachers and they show them has hospitality. Right? You have come to our town, you have come to preach, let us take care of you. Um, let us house you and thank you for bringing God's word. See you next time. In this book, in John, in Second John, what he's saying is, 
if the visiting preacher comes and he doesn't bring the correct Christology, right? If he if he denies the deity of Christ or he denies the resurrection or he denies the Trinity, then have nothing to do with him. Right? You don't let him into your home, you don't greet him, you don't have fellowship with him at all. So I think it's not saying that um you don't talk to them at all, as in like, you know, complete shut off. I think he's saying remove all Christian fellowship with him. Remove all brotherly fellowship with him. Have no fellowship with them because they are not a brother and sister, as you saw in First John, right? Doctrinally, if you deny Christ, you cannot be saved. Uh, Jehovah's Witness would fit this description, right? And yet Jehovah's Witness have, some Jehovah's Witnesses have been converted through Christians who would witness to them. But you don't treat them like they are Christians because they are not. Don't treat them like they are brothers and sisters. Um, but it's funny because what they will try to do is uh, they will try to act like they are also believers, right? Have you noticed that? They will say, no, 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 we're on the same page. We also love Jesus Christ. And then when you show them from Scripture that they actually deny the Lord Jesus, they will turn away very quickly and move on to the next one, right? So what we see here is, is kind of radical. It's, it's actually very radical. These false teachers have nothing to do with them. And it's an important lesson for us. Right? Because often as Christian Christians, God has changed our nature. And so, blessed are the peacemakers. We want to reach out to people and we want to try and reconcile. We want to be friendly. We don't want to push people away. And we think that if we are nice to people, then they will, they will, be, they will be won over. They will change when they see how lovely we are. Right? What we can take away from this is that it is right for us to treat people that way. But we should treat everyone else that way except for false teachers. Right? False teachers are where the Bible is very clear. Not just here in, in John, but in other places as well. It's very clear. Have nothing to do with them. So don't feel bad or guilty for having to treat them in that way. They must know where we stand on God's word. Right? Our allegiance, our obedience is first to God's word. Besides, false teachers are very devious. And nine times out of ten, they are intentional about it. If you try to interact with them and you are a weak Christian and your knowledge of the scripture is not good, that can do a lot of damage. Okay, They are dangerous. They can deceive you and I. They can sow doubt where there shouldn't be any, like we saw in First John. Right, The church was now worried about their own salvation because um, false teachers were coming in and they sowed doubt and they were teaching a gospel contrary to what the scriptures tell. Right. And false, false teachers, you've seen, you see it throughout the Old Testament. You see it throughout the New Testament. They are experts at twisting scripture. They twist the verses in scripture very well. Also, false teachers tend to be very nice. Right. They tend to be smiley. They tend to be warm and welcoming. And so that can be part of the deception. You don't easily see that this is a person who is not standing on the authority of God's word. So be aware of that. Okay. Okay. And then we have just a few minutes left. So 3 John, if we turn there, um, verse 1 says, To the elder, sorry, the elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. So very interesting prayer. It's actually seen as a pagan, as a pagan prayer. This would be like a normal Roman, uh, Roman prayer. So you can imagine unbelievers praying like this. I hope it goes well with you and you stay in good health. Think of us during Christmas time, you know, every, all of a sudden everyone becomes spiritual and sort of religious. Like, oh, may this be, may this be 
the case for your life. May you have this kind of Christmas and New Year, etc., etc. But that is actually a good and beautiful prayer in the right context, right? Verse 3 says, For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Verse 5, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, so he's talking about the itinerant preachers, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So here's the other side of the itinerant preachers who come by, right? These are the ones who are faithful to the word, who preach the word, who don't come with false doctrine. He says, we should support them, show hospitality. You are doing a good work in doing this. And then he deals with this individual in verse 9. So verse 9, he says, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of out of the church. So there's this guy, Diotrephes, and he has taken control of the church and now he's actually stopping people from showing hospitality to these itinerant preachers. Uh, he's even getting them put out of the church and he's rejecting the authority of the apostles. So it's hard to know what is going on exactly what Diotrephes we don't have much in terms of context. Uh, scripture doesn't say much in terms of context. It doesn't seem like he was teaching heresy. It seems as though he was just a proud man. He was a control freak. That seems to be the issue. Someone gets power and now he's abusing it and he's refusing to acknowledge John's authority. So John is going to come and visit soon. Uh, he says so in the final greeting. So verse 13, he says, I had, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with much with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. So he ends the letter. And so here, um, I guess the, the practical application we can take from it is that it's a warning of making sure that we have a healthy Baptistic church structure, right? Um, that is a church structure where there are a plurality of elders. It's not just one guy who's in charge. And it's a structure where the congregation is responsible for removing any false teachers and for removing elders who are not qualified to be there right um so it's 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 something that we can we can take away from this we need to have a good church structure um where uh, there are multiple elders not just one and that the congregation is a, is holding them accountable for their teaching and for their lifestyle okay let's end it there are there any questions or thoughts that you guys would like to share On any one of the books so um, questions thoughts uh, comments agreements disagreements so what 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 he's saying here is um, so okay you have believers and non-believers right so verse 16 he says if he sees a brother committing a sin this is a believer um, committing a sin that is not leading to death right he shall ask and God will give him a life give him life so this this is to do with sins of lifestyle, right? So remember, like, the, the three tests really help as, you know, putting categories to think about this. So this is like a moral thing. You see your, you see your, 
if it's a sin leading to death, we can give, we can just like fill in the blank. So say, uh, I think I use lying, right? Uh, if someone lies, you know, they can, they, they can still be saved. If someone steals, they can still be saved or whatever. So this is not doctrinal. This is not denying Christ, right? So you see them living in sin and you pray for them. And what will God, what will God do? God will give him life, right? To those who, lead, who commit sins that do not lead to death. So life there as in God will um, bring them out of that sin, right? I hope that makes sense. So God will bring them out of that sin. And that is the truth of scripture, right? You, we do not, even though we fight sins, uh, as we get sanctified, we become better with those sins, right? Like I used to lie badly, but now I don't lie that much. So then contrasted with now, there is a sin that leads to death, the doctrinal sin, right? Um, you cannot pray for that for an unbeliever, right? You cannot say, God, this unbeliever is lying, right please um um please give him life please please pray for him it, so in other way it's in other words it's basically how you pray for those people you would actually much rather pray that that person gets saved because his sin is is not that which uh is, is that which leads to death so you cannot pray the same thing for the brother that you pray for the non-brother does that make sense so that's i think that's that's what he's saying there um, he's saying that, uh, so verse 16, the second part, he's saying, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. So even the sentence construction, it's kind of tied to the, the, the start of verse 16, right? So basically, um, if, if you see a believer and a non-believer lying, right, you can pray that God, please stop my brother in the Lord, uh, my, my brother in Christ from lying. But you shouldn't pray that for the non-believer. That's, that's kind of pointless, right? Because his issue is that he's not saved. He needs to be saved. I think like putting it that way um, uh, makes sense. Because even, even then, like, like, that's what John is saying. Like, I do not say that one should pray for that. Um, um, after all, verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So can you see like what he's getting at with, with that? Um, so even like in the greater, then if you see like verse 18, he continues talking about those who um, are born of God do not keep on sinning, um, da, 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 right? So essentially that's, that's what he's saying there, um, saying for those who are not believers, do, do not pray that, do not pray for that. And that's, that's the case, you know, when you come across a non-believer, it's kind of pointless praying that, Lord, stop these unbelievers from lying, from uh you know, da, 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 da. We, we, we're moralizing them. You know, we're not actually seeking their salvation. We should be praying for their salvation instead. Um, so I, I hope that makes sense. Does that answer the question? So yeah, like I, like I said at the start, remember John John uses contrast a lot, right? And you see that constantly. So, um, so like I think at the beginning I said he'll say, uh, you know, light and darkness. He'll say sin and uh, life and sin, um, uh, uh, brothers and those who are not brothers. So it's he just uses contrast. That's that's how he writes. Even in the gospel, uh, in John's gospel, 
you find a lot of these these passages where it's trick it's tricky reading it's not that it's like confusing or it's bad it's just like stylistically you know once you once you see how you write he tends to use a lot of contrast because he's just showing what you do this is the way of the believer and then he, sh- he shows almost extreme opposite an unbeliever would do this but he's still making the same point you know it's proving your point uh by positive and uh it's what are they saying? It's arguing for, arguing from the positive and arguing from the negative. So John does that a lot. That's why if you like would just scan through even the entire book, you will just see a lot of opposites of words here: life, death, uh, light, darkness. Da 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 da. So it's it's more just how he constructs his sentences and how John communicates his ideas. So that's that's why it can be tricky, um, tricky reading. But um, I think for me. That's what helps when reading this. It's just remembering, okay, this is how John writes. This is what he tends to use. And if you keep that in mind, it, it does help a lot. So, yeah.